Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the book of Colossians, and here the guys will begin to dive into the beginning of chapter one. As always, do take a look at those links down there in the show notes. We have a link to our YouTube channel, where right now we are in the midst of a series on a theology of music with Peter Lightheart. There are also links down there to some upcoming events, including a regional course and some intensive courses here in Birmingham, Alabama, and a link to register for our upcoming summer conference. And the topic for that conference this year is a vision of victory. Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and others will be delivering some of the keynote talks as well as others. There will also be breakout sessions during that two-day conference. Links for those events and for our YouTube channel and other social media handles are down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, We appreciate your tuning in and listening to our podcast. Uh, We have begun a series of studies in the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Uh, We started a few weeks back with reflections on Pauline theology in general and some of the recent developments in Pauline theology. We talked about epistles as a form of writing and the rationale for God to communicate through his apostles to the church in that form. That was an episode a couple weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about some of the major themes, the basic themes and issues that surround the letter to the Colossians and gave a general introduction to the book. So this week, we're going to actually plunge into the text and and cover about the first half of the uh, first chapter. After a couple of verses of greetings that I'll return to in a second, the next several sections uh, are organized around Paul's statements. We give thanks, verse 3, then verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So he's giving thanks for what the Lord has already done among the Colossians, and then he's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he's praying for other virtues, uh, other forms of maturity to emerge among the Colossians. So it moves from uh, overt thanksgiving to prayer. And then the next seems to be around verse 24, when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I share on behalf of his body and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that section appears to go on past the chapter division into the early part of chapter two. So we have here is a kind of sequence from thanksgiving for what God has already done, prayer for that God would complete and continue the work that he's doing among the Colossians, and then a statement of Paul's own participation in the sufferings of Christ and uh, what that produces or what that leads to with regard to the Colossians. And then um, 2.6, as you have received Christ, so walk in him, seems to be the beginning of a, a, new, a new section where Paul's going to be talking about the life that the Colossians have in Christ and how they're told to continue in that life. To introduce things, I want to focus on the opening couple of verses, the greeting, a typical epistolary greeting from Paul, identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning that he bears the authority of Jesus Christ. He's an authorized representative of Christ. Uh, Apostle is linked etymologically with the verb to send, but it's not merely one who is sent, because uh, there are many who are sent who are not, don't have apostolic weight. But an apostle is a, one who is sent with the full authority 
of the one who sends him here in this case, of course, Jesus Christ. So it's a statement about Paul's status. And I think that uh, the fact that he's uh, an apostle by the will of God is something that Paul emphasizes frequently in his letters. I think of Galatians where he insists that his apostolic authority doesn't depend on any kind of endorsement from the apostles of Jerusalem, although he has met with them and they approve of him, but he insists that his apostolic authority is directly from Jesus Christ and that it's related to his encounter with Jesus on the road, uh, road to Damascus. But I think the apostle by the will of God has a, has a wider significance in that, I suspect. So it's not just that Paul is personally chosen to be an apostle, personally chosen to bear the authority of Jesus and speak in the name of Jesus. Writes in his commentary, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians, suggests that will of God refers to the whole purpose and plan of God for for the church and for the whole creation. Uh, the gospel is a message of cosmic reconciliation and cosmic restoration and cosmic glorification. And Paul is playing a role in the fulfillment of that purpose and aim. He has a, uh, the, the apostles have a unique foundational role in, in that aim. So for, for Paul and for the other New Testament writers, the gospel is, a, is good news about the restoration of uh, creation. It's about the reconciliation of the cosmos. Things in heaven and things on earth are going to be reconciled in Christ, as we're going to read later on in chapter one. And it's a message about the glorification and the fulfillment of creation. Creation is reaching its destiny. And when Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God or uh, for the will of God, through the will of God, he's talking about his role in the achievement of that uh, purpose. But it's, it's related, I think, to what Jesus says at the end of Luke 24, where he summarizes the Old Testament as uh, the story of the suffering and glory of the Christ and also the proclamation of forgiveness of sins uh, and repentance to the nations. That's part of what God's aim was from the beginning. That's what's achieved in Jesus. And Paul is uh, sharing with Jesus in fulfilling that purpose or will of God. One last comment. Uh, Paul is writing not only... Uh, himself, but he's writing at, with Timothy, our brother. He says, uh, this is a, a letter that comes from, uh, at least initially comes from both Paul and Timothy. Uh, we talked about the authorship in the last episode, and Alistair pointed out that uh, this quickly moves to Paul himself speaking in his own voice. But at least in the greeting, Timothy is associated with Paul. And I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see the, the variation in Paul's designations of Timothy. Uh, there are a number of places where Paul talks about Timothy as my son, my child, my beloved child. But then in other places, Timothy is brother to Paul. So there's this uh, double relationship, which I, I suspect has to do with some kind of uh, maturation in their collaboration, some maturation in Timothy. Uh, Paul meets Timothy when he's still a young man, and uh, he he becomes a a kind of a deacon to Paul, but then he's elevated to become a collaborator and brother with the apostle. Uh, so there's this movement from sonship to brotherhood that I think is, uh, is, in, is interesting in, in looking at the role that Timothy plays in the early church. Timothy's also mentioned alongside Paul in um, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. And it seems that Timothy had a very peculiar relationship to Paul in that he was almost a plenipotentiary emissary. He could be sent out with authorization to act 
in Paul's name and as a representative of him to the churches to which he was sent. I had a quick comment, perhaps just in response to um, Wright's, was it Wright's idea um, of the will of God having this wider um, significance? Yes. On the one hand, I get it totally. Um, You know, there is this idea in Colossians of the reconciliation of all things. Um, At the same time, I do feel that there's sometimes this kind of bigger is necessarily better idea in Pauline exegesis. And the more you can tie something into a wider theme, the the better it is. But it doesn't seem to me that that's the way Paul uses will, um, the the particular thalema term. And particularly here in Colossians, it it seems to refer to um, the very specific will that God has for particular individuals and in terms of particular um, callings and elsewhere in terms of their sanctification and um you know obviously that is part of a bigger um theology but sometimes i think this sort of uh bigger is better instinct can uh kind of make everything paul uh says lose its uh specificity so i i I wonder about some of that i understand that concern i do wonder though whether if we read this alongside places like galatians chapter one Paul understands his call not just as a a general appointment to some regular office, but he's he's got some peculiar, specific role to play within an event of redemptive historical significance. Um, So this isn't just an appointment to the pastorate, for instance. This is um, a role that's comparable to Jeremiah or to um, some other prophet who has a pivotal role to play. Um, I think you see the same thing in the book of Acts, just with the attention that's given to the Apostle Paul within it. He's not just a messenger of some other story. He is part of the story himself, part of the means by which, part of the fulfilment of the the Old Testament promises and prophecies. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the that's the point that Wright is making, surely. Um, and it, and I think I take James's point. Um, there's a danger of losing the specificity, and Wright is probably the one that's most often, if it, if it's guilt, he's guilty of the kind of bigger is better tendency. I'm sure I picked it up from Wright, among other people. I mean, grand theological gestures are always are always appealing, but I think that the one place where I'd want to somewhat uh, qualify what you said, Alistair, is that. Uh, I would say the same, although Paul has a has a more prominent, significant role in the fulfillment of this redemptive historical sweep. Uh, that's the same is true of any lowly pastor who's ordained in some small out-of-the-way village. He too is part of that same thing. It's it's a much smaller scope of operation. But and I think that I guess the the thing that's appealing to me in that, James, is that you can when if you don't lose the you don't want to lose the specificity and the, and the personalization of it. But as long as that particularity is in, is in place, then it places what seem to be kind of uh, 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 puny, trivial uh, ministry. It places it in, it becomes part of this, uh, the, the purpose and plan of God for the restoration of the world. That, that is, in fact, the case. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul is always talking about that. That's and that's a that's a fair point, but I, that, I think there's a there's a kind of uh, dignity and a kind of energy that's given 
to people who recognize that however small their role, they're playing some some role in the in the great drama that is that is the the restoration of the world in Christ. Yeah, this is one of Paul's big points in Second Corinthians too, um, to bolster what you all have already said. This ministry of reconciliation he has, according to Second Corinthians five, um, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And then there's this remarkable statement here at the end of chapter 5. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, that is Paul and the apostles, might become the righteousness of God, the, in other words, the instruments, the, uh, the means by which the justice and righteousness of God is, um, is implemented in the world. So to me, that kind of connects up with uh, chapter one, verse one, and, and acknowledging James's point. And yet I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a stretch for us to unpack that a bit um, in, in terms of Paul's and the apostles' unique role in implementing the will of God um, and the new world through their ministry. I think maybe we see this most elaborated within the lengthy sentence at the beginning of um, Ephesians chapter 1. So you have at the very outset, he introduces himself again as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, but then the rest of that sentence is unpacking the will of God that has been revealed at this moment in history in Jesus Christ. Um, so according to the purpose of his will in verse five, in verse nine, made no, making known to us the mystery of his will. And then in verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this unpacking of the, the big freighted theological concept of the will of God that is tied with the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ at this moment in history is unpacking something that has been first introduced in relationship to Paul's own call. Um, so I think that maybe gives a bit more weight to this argument that Paul understands this will in a slightly more um, freight, theologically freighted sense. If we're, if we're done piling, piling in on James, then uh, I'm going to uh, another <laughs> comment. <laughs> I feel like we piled in plenty. Um, a, a, a verse too, I found a very a fascinating uh, because of the way that Paul describes the uh, saints and faithful brothers that he's addressing. Uh, the in the Greek, that phrase "saints and faithful brothers" is set between two phrases, two prepositional phrases that begin with "n" or "in." The first one is the location in uh, Asia Minor, Colossae. Uh, to those in uh, Colossae, saints and faithful brothers, and then the other one is in Christo, in Christ. So the, the saints and faithful brothers, or the holy and faithful brothers, however you want to interpret that, that, um, that phrasing, that identification of his addressees is surrounded by this double location, which I think is a very a neat way of summarizing the kind of double citizenship or the, the doubleness of Christian life. Uh, these are people who live in the actual city of Colossae. Uh, they, uh, they 
share that city with many others, but in that city, they are also in Christ. Uh, they have this double location and they're living in, living in a different place, as it were, within the shared place of the city of Colossae. Uh, and that, that kind of double citizenship or double location, I think, is a, it's worth reflecting on thinking about how, how we identify ourselves, you know, with nations, with cities, with locations, the rootedness in a place is, is significant. Paul's addressing them as being citizens of Colossae. But at the same time, that citizenship in the earthly place is qualified by or maybe even nestled within their location in Christ. And that, that double citizenship is crucial for understanding what, what it means to walk as a believer, as Paul's going to describe it. Yeah, and then you're going to get that remarkable statement in chapter 3 about uh, our lives being hidden with Christ in God, so that as saints, we are positioned in the heavenlies in Christ. And this is something that it's hard, I think, sometimes for modern Christians to envision, because we don't think about holiness in spatial categories. But anybody, any Jew, anybody reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, would recognize that there's this graded holiness throughout the, um, the story, uh, the most holy place is where Yahweh dwells. The holy place is where some priests can go in. Uh, there's a holy land. There's a holy city. But um, there's a lot of boundaries and a lot of barriers to uh, entrance into the, the most holy place, which is God's presence. Now, all that being removed, the saints are those who are positioned in Christ in the heavenlies. Um, and actually, according to th- Chapter three, you know, if we're in Christ, we're in God. We're in the we're within the Godhead in some some remarkable way, um, and so that's important. to Remember, this is not primarily a, a statement about morality or about their behavior, but about our position in Christ. So, perhaps a quick question, like carrying on some of that, it feels to me that Paul in different epistles introduces different contrasts in say, Corinthians, we might stress the spiritual versus the natural. Um, Here there is that contrast between what is in heaven and what is on earth. So uh, a few verses down, we're going to get to the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then in a couple of chapters, as Jeff's been um, uh, hinting at, you know, we've got this call to look for the things that are above um, where Christ is rather than those things that are below. And, um, you know, I just wondered, how should we uh, parse some of this um, language? How are we to think of it? In the Old Testament, we don't get this, uh, or at least not in those terms, this exact contrast between uh, heavenly and earthly um, realities. So how are we going to think about that in terms of this moment in history and this um, epistle is sort of, uh, heaven versus earthly. Um, what, what is that? Is that harps in heaven and guitars on the earth? Or uh, how are we going to cash some of this out? I think one dimension of it is what Jeff was just talking about, that uh, the, you have these uh, barriers to the immediate presence of God in the Old Testament. Uh, those are, uh, the veil is torn. We have access. We, we view the glory of God face to face in the face of Jesus and are transformed to the image of that glory. And you have something, seem to have something similar with, I mean, I think in terms of Hebrews, you have something similar with the barrier between heaven and earth, which in some sense is 
becomes porous in the new covenant. Jesus, the God-man, has entered into heaven. And so we have uh, an access to the heavenly sanctuary and heavenly places and heavenly thrones. Ephesians 2, uh, we're enthroned in the heavens in Christ uh, in the way that was not true in the old covenant. So uh, that's just one way to explain the, the absence of that kind of language in the old covenant. As far as uh, kind of ex- existentially, I think that's, uh, it's, you, can, you can explain it theologically. Existentially, I think it's harder to grasp exactly what is being described. And we, to put the pieces together that we've just talked about, uh, James, you mentioned the hope that's reserved in heaven. Paul's going to say later on in uh, Colossians 1 that uh, uh, Christ in us is our hope of glory. So uh, the hope reserved in heaven is the Christ who is in heaven to whom we look, according to the beginning of chapter 3. So uh, being in Christ and living in Christ uh, is living in that heavenly God-man. It's living in that hope and and dwelling in the hope that is reserved for us in heaven. Uh, And then concretely, it seems like what Paul is describing as the walk that we have in Christ is the practical way that we live in terms of that heavenly existence. Uh, That still feels very elusive to me. That's kind of a first stab at trying to make it existentially significant. One thing that does... um stick out, I think, as we read verses three to eight, is the presence of two triads. So there's the triad of the theological virtues of um, faith, love, and hope in verses four and five. And then more broadly, there's the Trinitarian structure of God the Father and Christ Jesus, and then at the end, love and the Spirit. And it seems more generally within Pauline theology, he's constantly returning to these two triads, the theological virtues you see in places like 1 Corinthians 13 or 1 Thessalonians, several places, Galatians, Ephesians, other epistles, you can find the same structure. And also, you constantly see this Trinitarian structure without ever explicitly tackling these as entities in themselves, they seem to be part of the fundamental grammar of Pauline thinking and theology. And I'd be curious to know what, first of all, is there a way that we should connect these two triads? How should we understand their role within Pauline theology? Um, Are these just underlying grammar or is is he working from a very explicit um, conception of these things but taken by themselves, that he can extract them from these structures and think about them on their own terms. Um, do we have evidence of that at certain points in his letters, or are they almost always just the underlying grammar that is ubiquitous but not necessarily explicit? A point perhaps in favour of that grammar um, idea, Alistair, I've recently been going through uh, – to Timothy, and there he refers initially to the faith that dwelt in Timothy's um, uh, grandmother initially and then then mother, and then a few verses later talks about the spirit that now dwells um, within Timothy. And it feels to me that there is in quite a few epistles, actually, that similar interchange between um, a quality like love um, or faith and the spirit, and that feels... Um, sufficiently subtle to put it in in that sort of grammar category to me. Alistair, would you, part of your question that uh, whether we can uh, 
match up the triads that are present here in Colossians 1? Is that part of what you're asking? Um, here in um, Colossians, but also more generally, does, yeah. what do we have that gives a sense of how Paul understood these triads? They're everywhere, but mm-hmm. do we have a more explicit treatment of them in some place that you'd see maybe giving us a deeper insight into his thinking about how they work within the structure of his theology? Yeah, I guess I, uh, at this at this point, I would want to think more about this, but at this point, I'd, I'd endorse the idea that it's a, it's a grammar that can structure all kinds of different, it's it's the deep structure of all kinds of different surface structures. So, uh, for example, I wouldn't, uh, I don't think that you'd be able to prove that uh, you have a direct association with the spirit and love, as you do in verse eight here, that that's a constant of Pauline theology, that it's just the spirit you mind that you have that you have that association in some places, but then you would have other associations. And and James just referred to a uh, was it Second Timothy and the spirit associated with faith rather than love. So I I, I think uh, that would suggest that there's a there's a deep trinitarian structure that uh, is the kind of the divine foundation for all kinds of exhortations, thanksgivings, encouragements that exist that are that are addressed to the to the uh to the people that paul's writing to and maybe maybe that gets to the oh is a way uh, of advancing a little bit on an answer to james's question about how you relate heaven and earth so we have faith hope and love here as uh, these are the things that paul is giving thanks for these are already fruits that are evident within the colossian community and given the trinitarian structure faith love and hope are expressions of uh, life in that, in fellowship with that triune God. They are expressions of communion with the Father in the Son uh, through the Spirit. That's the deep structure. The, the reality of what is happening to the Colossians is that they are communing with the God of heaven. They're in fellowship with the God of heaven. And the practical, uh, everyday expression of that is the, uh, the manifestation of these uh, of these so, of these virtues or these fruits uh, in life. So uh, these are these are, you know, if you wanted to use the kind of uh, uh, again make a grand theological gesture, uh, these are uh, features of a kind of participation in the divine nature. As second Second Peter calls it, or a kind of deification, because the the love and the faith and the hope that God is is being manifested in the Colossians as they fellowship with this God. So notice that you have the triad reversed in uh, 9 through 12, where Paul explains the content of his prayer, so that asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, which of course would be nice if those were capitalized, because that's Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, and being strengthened with all power, and on down, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. So you have Spirit, Lord, and Father, which is something of the reverse of the Trinitarian tribe we had in um, 6 through 8. And it also shows you how rich that triad is, as you said, Peter, for all sorts of purposes, and not not arbitrary purposes, but um, since God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have a kind of richness that surpasses any one formula, Paul is able to draw from that in all sorts of ways. And it'd be, it would be, I think it'd be pretty cool to have a study 
of how Paul uses Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in prayers and in exhortations, uh, because as has been said, it's all over the place. It's, it's also in the prayer of Ephesians, kind of classic prayer where Paul is also giving thanks in Ephesians 1.16, um, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So, so Jeff, you're volunteering. Since you said it'd be a cool to have such a study, I take that as uh, you raising your hand to produce said study. Yeah, well, look forward, look forward to seeing that. <laughs> there does seem to be a profound theological rhetoric in Paul's introduction to his letters. Um, and one of the most marked features of these is the way that he expresses his greetings for um, or his appreciation for the recipients of his letters in form in a form of expressing or reporting his thanks to God um, for them. And it seems to me that this is not just accidental. Paul is doing this very purposefully. He has a knowledge of um, the effect that this has. It's not just praising people for their, their virtues, but expressing his thanks to God for the fruit that God is producing in them and for the way that that fruit is affecting Christians all over the world and the response to that news of that fruit is itself bearing fruit. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, particularly, Peter, in terms of your work on gratitude, because it seems that there's something of that theology that's informing the way that Paul writes these introductions. Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add to what you, anything specific to add to what you just said. Uh, yeah, it is uh, the giving of thanks as the context for these theological declarations or, or meditations. I think that's, that is worth noting, but no additional thoughts at the moment. Well, one thing I would say is that this is an example of the more positive kind of portrayal and Paul's understanding of the Colossian saints. You don't have that, for example, in Galatians. There's no, there's nothing like this in the letter to Galatians. It just starts off really brutal and harsh. Uh, but here, and in Ephesians and in Philippians and other letters, as Alistair has noted, um, there is this concern to let let them know before he before he engages in any kind of rebuke or correction. There is this. Um, expression of love, of thanksgiving, uh, this very positive portrayal of their faithfulness. I mean, do you think that anyone in the Church of Colossae reading these introductory remarks would have any doubt about Paul's posture towards them? Uh, no, you know, grace and peace, always thank God, your faithful brothers, your faith and love. Um, you know, I think that order, as Elster mentions, is extremely important, not just in understanding these epistles, but just in dealing with one another. Of course, this is the way God has dealt with us. It's always grace first, and then instruction and correction and rebuke if necessary. And we ought to learn from this. I think the Colossian Christians, we should learn that this is the way we should deal with people, especially pastors, um, is to be able to give thanks for, to, for people and for their gifts and for what God has done through them before we start criticizing them. I think in addition to that, there's something 
about the way that we address people that expresses the truth about the good things that we see in them. And if you were a pagan letter, you would have this praise of the virtues of the recipient and all the good things about them that puffs them up a bit. But Paul here is thanking God for the fruit that he sees within the Colossians. And as they would read this, um, on the one hand, he's seeing something good in them. On the other hand, they would be humbled as they read this because they realize it's not about them. It's about what God is doing in and through them. And, and often I think we um, can praise ministers of the gospel and people through whom we see God doing great things directly and I think fail to recognize the true recipient, the true person to whom we should direct our thanks is God himself. And as we express that thanks for that person to God and the fact that we thank God for that person to them, um, it is something that humbles them, but also helps them to rejoice with us in the recognition God is indeed doing a work through them. And that, I think, is a very healthy way to praise what we see as good in people without feeding pride or puffing people up. That's a great point. Right, right. And at the same time, I, I guess, um, Paul's intro, so from verses three downwards, very much puts um, the Colossians in light and almost in touch with this bigger um, community. Paul has heard of them and um, praised for them. And he makes the point, you know, not that the gospel is doing some new thing in them. And so everyone needs to go to Colossae to catch the fire and bring it back to their churches. Rather, the, the gospel is doing their what it's doing everywhere. And, and Paul um, stresses this and, and stresses how they've been caught up in a common hope. And we spoke, I think, perhaps last week about the way in which epistles do that. They they uh, put people in touch with this wider community. And I think that's going to be very important to Paul's logic in this letter. Um, some of the bad influences, the false teachers we get to in chapter two, um, they are not holding fast to the head who is Christ. So they are sort of lone wolves, not plugged into this um, wider body of believers. Um, and, and that's what Paul begins to lay the foundations for here. I want to go back to the uh, the specifics of the, the hope that Paul describes here. Um, he talks about it as a hope laid up in heaven, which you previously heard uh, in the word of truth and the gospel. So that's one question. What, what does that mean for hope to be laid up in heaven? In what sense is it a heavenly hope, and how does that motivate? The other, the other question has to do with the relationship between faith, love, and hope. I mean, the order is notable. Uh, our typical, Duran from 1 Corinthians, our typical way of organizing those theological virtues is faith, hope, and love. But Paul scrambles the order here, and then also seems to put hope as a kind of foundational reality uh, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid out for you in heaven. Is that suggesting that hope is somehow the source for the love and the faith that he's thanking God for? So those questions about how Paul characterizes hope in verse 5. Do you think that hope here is close to being personified? The hope laid up for you in heaven? Uh, Jesus is the hope that is in heaven. 
for us. Yeah, that would certainly fit, as I've already mentioned, that certainly fit with other things that Paul's going to say about hope. Uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, what he says in, in chapter 3. A couple of thoughts that I had in relation to this. Uh, you think about, uh, and, and this goes back to James' question about heaven and earth. I mean, this, this is largely drawn from my studies of Revelation, but in, in Revelation, heaven is the place where things occur first. It's not that heaven is a, is a steady state static environment where nothing happens. It's where the lamb appears and is enthroned first. Uh, it's where the saints are enthroned at the end of Revelation first. They aren't yet enthroned on earth, but they're enthroned in heaven. And then the, the, uh, the, other, uh, the other side of that is that, of course, at the culmination of Revelation, heaven descends to earth and heaven and earth are joined. So heaven is the place where a hope is realized first, but then heaven isn't, it's, it's, not that, uh, it's, it's not that we need to escape from earth to go into heaven in order to realize that hope, but rather the hope is reserved in, uh, in heaven for us so that it can be, uh, so that it can uh, descend from heaven to us, so that heaven and earth can be joined. So that was one thought I had about how, and I think, yeah, personified, and also I think what, what Paul seems to be talking about is not hope so much as a virtue or as something that we, uh, that's inspired in us by the Spirit, but hope as the thing hoped for. The object of hope is reserved in heaven for us, and, but not reserved in heaven in the sense that it's, going, it, it's shut up away from us, but reserved in heaven because it's, uh, it's, it's being preserved so that it can be, uh, so we can receive it from heaven. One of the things that has always struck me about Paul's treatment of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and particularly in a passage like this, we can often think about these virtues primarily in terms of subjective expression. So I have faith and I have hope and I have love. Um, but here, hope is clearly about the objective correlate, the um, theological reality that grounds our patience and our long-suffering, our hope, and our, all these things that order us towards the future. It's something that's laid up for us. It's not just wishful thinking or optimism. It's grounded on the objective reality of a future that God has prepared for his people. And a similar thing about faith. Our faith is not just with Christ as its object here. Um, our faith is in Christ. It's grounded in the reality of his um, self and his life, and it grows and it um, finds its fruitfulness in the soil of Christ. And a similar thing about love. It's not, not just a human affection here. It's the manifestation of the Spirit's own work. It's your love in the Spirit. And that, I think, helps us to move beyond a focus in upon ourselves when we're thinking about the theological virtues, to recognize that these things arise out of our union with Christ in the Spirit, and something that is grounded in the work of the Father. And bringing all of those things together, we end up looking outside of ourselves in a way that we would not otherwise if we think of these merely as subjective virtues. Yeah, a great, great point, Alistair. Uh, that, yeah, the, this is a, it's kind of what I was getting at with the suggestions about a, a sort of deification, that it's God's work in us that takes this manifested in, the, in this human virtues, but it's because, because of God's work in us, not because of some, uh, some, 
some any kind of inherent virtue or even even something that's being uh, uh, that's being uh, yeah, nothing being ginned up within ourselves. I, I wanted to point to the language of verse six in particular. Um, and this I'm again drawing on right. He he links this uh, bearing fruit and increasing, and then other references to bearing fruit in verse ten. Bearing fruit and increasing; those those words are used again in verse ten, suggesting that there's a a, a distant allusion back to the early, uh, back to the creation account when man is created to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's being realized in the way that the gospel is spreading. And as the gospel spread, that means more and more human beings are being transformed. So the earth is being uh, filled and uh, there's, a, there's a fruitfulness in uh, new creation and newly created human beings. Uh, that's a, that's a, an effect of the gospel. The other thing that it, it occurred to me is uh, the, the way that uh, that language is picked up at the beginning of the book of Exodus where you have this uh, uh, piling up of the language of fruitfulness and increase and becoming great. It's describing Israel while in Egypt. So in a, in a situation where Israel is under oppression from Pharaoh, uh, they're growing and increasing and becoming abundant and being fruitful. Uh, and I, it, it occurred to me, this is partly based on some of the other things that Wright says about Exodus motifs in this passage. Um, but it occurred to me that, Paul's describing the church as this uh, uh, burgeoning community, this burgeoning people within an environment where you have hostile powers, uh, uh, non-Christian Jews who are hostile to the church, eventually Romans who are hostile to the church. But you're in this kind of exodus situation being uh, uh, multiplying, they're becoming great. Uh, and that, very growth becomes a threat to those who are in power. So it seems like we have a, a combination of both creation and uh, exodus. Uh, the, the thanks that Paul gives, uh, it, it, governed by verse 3, we give thanks to God, and that seems to go down through uh, verse 8, as we've discussed. And then verse 9, he send, says that he uh, never ceases to pray for them, and then he's praying that the things that have already begun in them will be fulfilled and will mature and come to their full realization. Um, and in both cases, uh, Paul uses uh, language of continuous. He prays always giving thanks in verse three. And then uh, he has not ceased to pray for you to ask what may be that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So there's a, um, there's a, uh, uh, there's a, there's an emphasis on the uh, constancy of his prayer. And I, my my guess is that what we have here is a uh, an allusion back to the to the various uh, tamid uh, the uh, uh, continuous activities of the sanctuary in the Old Testament. Uh, the the lampstand had to be burning uh, continuously. There had to be continuous uh, offerings on the on the bronze altar. Um, the the showbread was continuously before the before the Lord and. Part of that has to do with not so much the um, uninterrupted, not not so much uninterrupted time as regularity of time. So even though uh, there's not necessarily something burning, uh, a flame going up from the altar all the time, you, you put one burnt offering on the altar overnight. And uh, even if it's not burning all the time uh, through the entire night, you still have a continuous offering because you do it morning and evening. 
And I, I suspect that what Paul's getting at is a kind of regularity in his prayers for the Colossian church. Um, not, not 24 seven prayers, but a regularity and, uh, and perhaps even following uh, standard Jewish times of prayer, which were established by the first century. The content of Paul's prayer is that uh, the Colossians would be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So there's this emphasis on them growing in uh, their grasp of the truth of God's will. And again, I, I, we, we don't need to rehash the discussion we had earlier about God's will, but uh, and a deepening understanding of God's will is uh, includes, as James pointed out, the particularity of God's uh, uh, care and election of will for me, but within the larger uh, aim of uh, his will for the world and how I fit into that. Uh, but it, it's, it's striking that the emphasis is on knowledge. He uses these kind of cognitive terms, not exclusively cognitive, but these kind of cognitive terms. What he's wanting the Colossians to do is to be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And that's what gives them direction and, uh, and uh, stability in the walk that they're going to have, uh, worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it does very much follow from his opening Thanksgiving because God has acted in the way that he did in bringing the Colossians into this initial knowledge of Christ, Paul can pray with confidence on the basis of that, that they will rise to the full stature of faith. He's praying with the grain of what God has already begun in them. And that's why his prayers for them are always, um, always include this element of thanksgiving. Um, God has qualified them for these things. And it seems natural to pray that he will complete what he has started in them. It's, it's striking the language he uses here. He's not just praying that they would, you know, make a little progress. Um, he's the language is they'd be filled with the knowledge and all spiritual wisdom, um, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing being strength with all power, all endurance and patience. Um, this this uh, <clears throat> holding out to them a maturity that they can look forward to and strive for. This seems to be one of the themes in Colossians. He'll return to this at the end of the chapter and also in uh, chapter two as well, um, that, that there's, these, there's these treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and he wants them to reach full assurance um, of what they have in Christ and how they're to live in terms of that. Right, and this seems to be a wisdom in uh, verses 9 and onwards that is very much in contrast to what may have been a more secretive wisdom being uh, offered to the Colossians. And so at the end of, um, where are we, chapter 2, talks about people who have an appearance of wisdom um, in promoting self-made um, religion, which is of no value in stopping the indulgence um, of the flesh. By contrast, this is um, a knowledge of God's will and of, of spiritual wisdom, so as to walk in a manner worthy of, of the Lord. So this is a, a very kind of grounded um, knowledge, which results in sanctification as a, a concrete outworking of it. 
Yeah, that's a great point, uh, James. Uh, and I, I, I'm I, Jeff. I'm glad you highlighted that. Um, you know, if if this is written in any way um, into a quasi gnostic or uh, uh, situation where some of the Colossian church have some notions of superior knowledge, as James was saying. Uh, yeah, uh, Paul is knocking that down, and you have this kind of ma uh, massively, uh, th this uh, universally distributed wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and uh, Paul wants everyone in the Corinthian church, uh, Colossian church, uh, to reach that, that maturity of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, not reserved for the apostles, not reserved for uh, Epaphras, not reserved for some uh, elite within the church, but all of the Colossians are supposed to share in that knowledge. And the contrast between their former state and their current one is expressed in terms of a, a dichotomy that would use familiar terms from those to those who would work in terms of these um, polarizations between insight and um, darkness what you have here is nothing less than the movement between the inheritance of this of the domain of darkness and the inheritance of the saints and light that distinction between light and darkness evokes the original creation it also evokes the great moments of redemption where there is this shift from darkness to light we can think also of the way that this is developed in Ephesians chapter 5 but here there is maybe we could think of it as an exodus type redemption, a deliverance and redemption from a former domain and a transfer, being transformed and transferred into a very different sort of realm, one of freedom and of light. There's, there's a real challenge here too for, um, <clears throat> well, evangelicals and evangelicals that are um, influenced by the Reformation uh, all of this that Paul prays for, uh, that, I mean, people can read this and say, well, that can't be me. I can't be filled with that much knowledge and spiritual wisdom. I can't be fully pleasing to the Lord and all endurance and patience. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just a worm. I'm a sinner. I'm, I can't make any progress. There's no progress for me. My only progress is just continually confessing that I'm a sinner and that I need the righteousness of Christ. Now, there's, obviously, there's truth to that. We do that in the liturgy every Sunday. We should do that every day, confessing our sin. But there is this, there is this hope of, by Paul that his readers will actually make progress, that they will come to a place where uh, – they can be not not in any arrogant sense, not in you know hubris. Well, look, I've arrived, but uh, and of course, obviously, there's always a sense in which we're always moving, we're always progressing. But again, this is striking to me because I think too many Christians uh, don't have this kind of hope, this kind of um, you know uh, horizon that they can actually become more mature be more fully assured of their faith and uh, of their life of faithfulness. Might also contrast this with a vision that might be put forward by mystics and others who promise spiritual insight and knowledge and great spiritual power. 
But here, Paul promises those things, but they're tethered to different realities. Um, and so the promise of or looking that they'd be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that could be taken in a very, um, in a sense of superior spiritual insight, things like that. But here it's tethered to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. And in the same way, the, the hope that they be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God, what's that for? It's for endurance and patience with joy. And these are not the things that we would, if we had these puzzle as puzzle pieces out on a table and we're trying to match them up, we wouldn't necessarily think of being strengthened with all power and glorious might um, to be connected with endurance and patience with joy. But that's the connection that Paul draws. I think that was a, a great point, Jeff and Alistair. Um, I think that one of the one of the threats is not is, uh, along with the threat of a kind of worm theology, where we uh, think of ourselves as too depraved to make any progress, like Paul's describing. There's the danger of complacency uh, that we be, that we're satisfied with what the Lord has done in us, and uh, we don't continue to hope for and strive for the kind of growth that Paul's talking about. Uh, we know enough. We've achieved enough spiritual wisdom. We've we've come to a plateau, and uh, we're satisfied and comfortable with where we are. Uh, but what Paul's describing is a continuous growth in knowledge and wisdom and strength, spiritual power, spiritual discernment, uh, to reach the fullness and grow up into the head to become fully Christ-like. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.